Hello, and welcome back to The Director's Cut, brought to you by the Directors Guild of America. Remember to subscribe to our podcast on iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts. In honor of the 70th annual DGA Awards, we're bringing back our annual series devoted to our popular Meet the Nominees feature film symposium. Now in its 27th year, the event is a roundtable discussion with the directors nominated for the Guild's Award for Outstanding Directorial Achievement in Feature Film. This year's nominees include Guillermo del Toro, the director of The Shape of Water, Greta Gerwig, the director of Lady Bird, Martin McDonough, the director of Three Billboards Outside Ebbing, Missouri, Christopher Nolan, the director of Dunkirk, and Jordan Peele, the director of Get Out. Each of these talented directors were gathered on February 3rd at the DGA Theater in Los Angeles to discuss the craft of directing and the making of their films with moderator Jeremy Kagan. So please enjoy part one of our Meet the Nominees special and listen to the five nominees share their thoughts on being writer-directors on their films and their different approaches to opening their films. Highlights include Greta Gerwig discussing how having been an actor, she likes to position herself next to the camera, why Guillermo del Toro likes to put little heads made of tape at the bottom of a monitor while watching takes, and how Jordan Peele made Race the monster in his horror film. Ladies and gentlemen, please welcome the five nominees for Outstanding Director of a Feature Film by the Directors Guild of America. Here are some remarkable filmmakers. Please welcome them. As you know, this is an audience of people who are themselves part of the directorial team. So hopefully our conversations will stimulate some of the things that make it a little different from the conversations you have to have about your film all these last, last number of months. Um, but let me introduce you first, just in case we don't know. To my right is Martin McDonough of Three Billboards Outside Ebbing, Missouri. And Guillermo Dottero of The Shape of Water. And Greta Gerwig, Lady Bird. Jordan Peele. Get out. Thank you very much. And hopefully I'm still on. And we have Chris Nolan from Dunkirk. And you know, as, as we're sitting in these very comfortable chairs, I was actually curious where each one of you positions yourself when you get on set. So I'm going to start with you, Chris. Of course, you've got three different locations. You're in the air, you're in the land, and you're in the sea. But where do you want to position yourself when you're on set? Um, I'm always uh, beside camera. So I always get as close to camera as possible. Um, I don't use chairs. We don't tend to have chairs or a video village on set. So we tend to just try and keep the energy moving. So I, I tend not to sit down during the day. So, uh, And I'll stay right by camera and try and watch with my eyes what's going on and, and take in as much as I can that way. Um, I wear a little um, UHF monitor around my neck so I can just check framings or use the, uh, the one mounted on top of the camera, but, but basically I stay by camera. When you were dealing with certain issues like being in those airplanes, I know mm. that the airplane had a double seat in order for you to be able to photograph. Where were you able to position yourself to watch Thomas Hardy do what he did? Well, we, I mean, very different for different setups. So sometimes I could be in the plane 
running the camera. Sometimes they're on the ground waiting for the actor to come back from a sortie and then watch the tape with them. And most of the time we were in a, an Aerostar, which is a very fast twin engine plane, following the, following the planes with my DP uh, and our aerial DP and, and an amazing pilot, Craig Hosking, who was effectively operating the camera using the plane. So he would literally steer and frame uh, using the plane, which at times gets a little bumpy. And when you were in the water, um, literally, for example, in the scene mm. we just saw, um, if you were wanting to be able to get as close to, for example, Fionn's Whitehead's performance, yeah. where were you there? We, we were in the water. Um, I mean, we spent a lot of days just floating around uh, with the actors and, and in and around it. And, and Hoyte van Hoytema, my director of photography, had been really, really keen to, to break down the sort of barrier. You know, traditionally in photography, you're out of the water or you're under the water. It's very difficult to sort of be on it. And so he uh, had these sort of wet bags designed that we could put an IMAX camera in and we could basically use a boogie board or a noodle. We float around on noodles and had the camera on a, on a boogie board kind of, so you could dip the lens below or be there and be right there, there with the actors floating around. So um, yeah, I mean, it was, it was a lot of fun actually. I mean, it, at first it was sort of daunting, but then when you do it day after day, you get, you get better at it. And uh, I think everybody found it very challenging, but I think kind of enjoyed it. Jordan, where do you position yourself? Um, well, first of all, the way I, I, this is we'll get some already. A, 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 <laughs> Your position just showing that I have no business being up here. Um, <laughs> I, and I, rec I recognize these chairs, by the way. And if you're planning to send me to sunken place, the seat today, I. Um, I'm, I'm uh, it, it feels like I'm a little bit everywhere. Uh, you know, I definitely uh, spend a good amount of time by the monitor and I'm running back and forth between the set um, and, and the monitor. Uh, I, the, I, I tend to, to feel more comfortable at the monitor than I do sort of in the set with the, the performers, with the actors. Um, uh, uh, I think mainly because I, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm trying to experience it as the audience will in, in the best way possible. And I also, uh, you know, feel like I don't want to be a distraction. Um, a lot of the time uh, on set is spent taking walks with the actors uh, individually. And, uh, you know, I, I feel like the, the, the we, we sort of have to come to a, an agreement about um, what the emotion um, at any given moment in in the in the scene is. Um, identify flaws in the way I had been thinking about it um, in, in the script, and uh, and 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 ultimately, you know, I think I think for every character in the film, I. I had to, I had to sort of play the role myself mm -hmm. in talking to them. So I had, when, to, I had to feel those moments. If you wanted, if you're at the monitor and you want to give an adjustment, let's say even the scene we just saw, I mean, there's an amazing performance by Daniel in that particular scene. If you wanted to give an adjustment, how do you work that? Do you walk onto the set? Will you? What's your methodology? Yeah, I, for that particular scene, and the way I approached every actor from the get-go was. I, you know, I said to them, you know, this is probably going to be the what what sinks me because it's too difficult. But what's your 
ideal process. Describe it to me. Um, every actor has a very different process. Um, Daniel is the type of actor who likes to, he, 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 he's a completely immersive actor and he's reactive. He doesn't like to over talk, overthink. He likes to know the emotion that he's, he's uh, uh, feeling and then we let him go. So for that scene, he did his part of it all the way through, probably about five times. After each pass, each and each each time he did it was uh, flawless, beautiful, and different nuanced performances. And he would need, uh, you know, uh, understandably so, he would need a, a break. So he would he would do, he would do a, a pass of the scene. Um, I'd, I'd come on. I go, okay, Daniel, take a walk. He would go outside and sit and think and feel. And then after about five, 10 minutes, I would come approach him. I'd say, how are you feeling? Um, you know, I'm, I'm loving what I'm getting, but let's, let's talk through any other nuances, any moments you're not feeling, any moments where you want to do, but, um, and then, you know, eventually we, we would talk, we'd get to this point where he'd go, uh, 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 all right, all right, let's go, let's go. You know, and he would tell me we're ready. And why, why did you do it repeatedly for yourself? Because you knew you were getting it, why go on? It's, it's, it's one of those things where uh, if, if someone nails it on the first pass, you're just like, what does that second pass look like? <laughs> you know, is, this is, it would be a mistake. I mean, a, a, a scene to, to point out where this was the case was the scene with Betty Gabriel, who played Georgina, the, the housekeeper. Yep. Uh, and this really classic, beautiful, beautiful performance she, she, she did up in Rose's bedroom, um, where the character that's buried in her sunken place almost um, you know, emerges uh, due to the, fo the force of her own will. But of course, the, you know, the, the, the woman that's operating the body you know, suppresses her. So that scene, we did about 11 times. Wow. The Is this first the one where she's going, no, 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 no? This is the scene where she did, no, no, no. And the first time it was just perfect. And so I went and I said, I was like, look, I love it. You know, maybe like, let's, let's try dialing up the crazy a little bit when it gets crazy. She went back and she did it again and it was, it was a little bit better. And I was like, well, this is, okay, let's try it again. Give me a little bit more crazy. Did it. We did that 11 times, it kept getting better. And at the end, I realized, well, sh we could do this all day. <laughs> and it would keep getting better. And I said, okay, well, I'm good. Uh, you know, we're good. Um, I'm glad we did it all these times because each one, you know, and I said, do you, if, unless you want one more. And she goes, give me one more. And that's, that's the one that's in there. Wow. Fabulous. <laughs> Fabulous. Thank you. Thank you. Um, positioning, Greta, where do you put yourself on the set? Uh, well, to just sort of highlight the surreality of this moment, <laughs> I had read because I, before I directed, I, re I talked to lots of people, I'd read a lot of interviews, and one of the things that I read was that you don't sit down on sets, Mr. Nolan, and <laughs> um, that was a thing that I, I was like, well, gotta, gotta model yourself after someone. <laughs> um, <laughs> um, so, <laughs> I, I have Apple boxes uh, to say if I, uh, but I don't like Video Village. Um, I, this also comes from the fact that I've been an actor on a lot of different sets, and I find as an actor, there's nothing 
worse than feeling like there's a committee that's a little away that's judging every everything. And so I like to keep it kind of moving and fleet. And um, so I'm usually by the camera because I like to be it's I like to be sort of a one person audience um, in that way for the actors uh, that they're kind of getting the performance to me and the camera at the same time. And I'm I'm usually up and and walking and uh, just in the, the the flow of what's happening. Got it. Got it. Guillermo, where do you position yourself? You know, I I, I am same different different scenes call for different things. If um, if the camera is very mobile, by the way, the, I would have chosen another clip, but <laughs> that clip illustrates the beautiful part of what I'm going to talk about is the, uh, the actor needs to feel you, that you're there. I think that the actor needs to feel that your eyes are there with, with uh, him or her on the scene, that you're watching not through a monitor, uh, if it's possible. What I do is I have well, what we used to call a clamshell, and the clamshell, I can, I can go and avert my eyes to the clamshell for a technical crossing of the camera and the actor or a momentary intersection. And then I lift my eyes up so that the actor knows uh, he or she is being watched. I don't think it's intrusive. I think it's the opposite. And I think it's very intimate and is, is, is truly the loneliest two places in a movie set are your seat and the actor standing there. They're the loneliest, other than the focus puller. Which <laughs> is the most horrifying. Just most anxious. It's the most horrifying place on earth. <laughs> but that is the sunken place. <laughs> but but I, I think they, when, when you know you have company on both sides, it's really necessary to do it. I, I have, I also share, I do sit, but I do sit on an apple box. I don't carry the chair. I don't like to be in Video Village. I don't like the remoteness. Uh, but if I have to, like if the camera is going to be so mobile and the space is so tight, I go to the Video Village and I uh, choose the biggest monitor I can and I, I tape at the bottom uh, a row of heads cut out of black tape <laughs> to remind me of the scale of the, the image on a movie set, on a movie theater. You know, I, I cut it and I put it there like a, like a row of seats. If I have to go there, I at least want to have a different perspective, not have the same, because you can scale down if you're watching on a monitor. Now, because so much of the movie is fluid camera, yes. um, where were you positioning yourself in, on the sets where you could be by camera? I made the decision on Shape of Water to keep the camera moving the entire time, to float. That's why the opening and the closing were done in dry for wet with the camera gliding. I wanted to shoot it like a musical, and I, therefore uh, I was moving a lot with the camera, or I would position myself on the blind spot of that blocking. Got it. But I would stay on the set because uh, uh, I feel that uh, you, know, you can also instruct. Uh, if you're in Video Village, you are seeing the result of the intersection. No, get there, but if you are there, during rehearsals and the first couple of takes, you can see why the dolly grip is not reaching the mark. You can uh, suggest something. You know, you can you can be mechanically oriented 
and, and performance oriented in a much easier way. Because there's so many, the camera is moving so often, yeah. would you, and I see where you are, would your initial moments be, I'm watching, even if the clamshell's here, that move to know that that's working and then be concentrating on your performance, or was it a combination for you? Well, what I've had since I was a kid, and I started shooting Super 8 at 8, you know, what I have is I know what the lens is looking at, even if I didn't have the clamshell. I know what the move is going to be with a dolly, with a mini jib, with a, you know. So it makes no difference. To, I, I can, I'm there, uh, even if I'm in a corner and I don't have the clamshell, I would know. Got it. Yeah. Martin, where do you position yourself? Um, I think kind of like Jordan, I'm kind of uh, at the monitor a good deal, but kind of close enough to get straight out there to, to talk to the actors uh, as soon as I possibly can. But um, I think uh, I take a lot of notes during each, uh, during each take, um, and I think that would be kind of distracting for the actors. Uh, but I kind of uh, note off almost each line um, to, to, to know if we've gotten it, if the emotion no. is there. Do you actually have sides or something in front? Yeah, just, just on the sides, and I go through like a whole bunch of them each day. But, um, but, but it, it puts me at more ease, I think, to be uh, looking at the image and just seeing those details. I, I, I mean, I think I should learn to, to do, it, do it a little bit more like Christopher and There's Greta. a question about the process, which, which is when you're making those notes, do you look away? In other words, are you, I'm up and down here and then I'm back? Uh, or you do, or mostly uh, it'd be like just literally uh, uh, making a mark at each line to, 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 to know if we've got it or not. But I think that's probably coming from you know, a writing background and, and being in a writer's head and, and um, maybe I need to get over it. But, um, but, <laughs> but, but it, but it kind of works for me. And then <coughs> once I've narrowed down what we haven't got, then those would be the, the the lines to, to concentrate on with the actors to, now, to get that emotion. This is actually a unique experience for us here because this, is, I believe, is the first time all five directors actually are, in fact, the writers of the material. So the transition from being writers... <laughs> well, you can blame yourselves, too, because I was thinking, how many times do you turn to the writer and say, what did you just give me? I don't know how to turn this in. That means looking at yourself in the mirror. So the question becomes that transition process from writing what you've written to bringing that into a cinematic visualization. And I'd like to... Just talk about the openings of the movies, because each one of your openings is incredibly powerful. And I don't know what was in the script initially, and I know you worked on your script for many, many years before you actually shot this. And there's very specific, in fact, it's totally imagistic in terms of the very opening, in terms of how you've done it. Um, how did it emerge from what was on the page to your transition of, I'm now the director and I need to visualize. Well, I, when I'm writing the script, I'm not thinking about it in terms of visuals too much. It's usually in terms of uh, character and, and dialogue and, and plot. Um, once it's finished, I usually, uh, it's a whole separate process to go away on my own and st storyboard the whole thing. Um, literally every, every scene, even, the, even the, just the talky scenes. Um, that opening, though, was always all image. Um, but there's a lot of um, uh, nuance to what Francis was doing in it, too. I mean, it, it's all about making that decision, seeing that decision, and ha also having that whole backstory there 
present with her in the car. So that was uh, a, a, a combination of, of, of storyboarding and, and uh, sticking to what was in the script. But of course, there was no dialogue, so it was, it was quite heavily uh, shot-based. And when you say storyboarding, um, are you making these images? Are you sharing it with? Yeah, yeah, and it's, they're really terrible. Uh, and everyone laughs at me, uh, apart from the DP, which is, is, is how we keep working together, I guess. Um, <laughs> But, but he doesn't mind, uh, and and it's actually a good shorthand for us both because he'll he'll kind of know what I'm trying to get at, and then he'll come up with something that will save, you know, doing something in three images when you can do it in one or in one move or something. And establishing though in that opening, you've got those billboards before we find her in the car. How did that evolve? Because they actually set a mood. There's even a kind of weather feel that we get. This is before you introduce her in the car. Yeah, yeah, and we were lucky. We, we went out that morning to shoot. You were, you were supposed to see these, these three billboards uh, on a lonely road before, you know, uh, before the movie opens. We were lucked out that it was a completely misty morning, the only one we had, and we just turned up and it was, it was perfect. The fog was there and it just lasted for the two hours that we, uh, we uh, needed it to, um, but then it was all about you know picking the best um, and the, the bleakest or the most beautiful angles of of those uh, already established billboards on the road. But then it was all all about getting in the car and seeing how many how much uh, we needed to be with Francis. And I remember it, it seemed like a simple scene, but we we took. Uh, I remember saying to the first AD, Peter Cohen, that we needed probably twice as much time because it was not just about location and establishing billboards. It was all about really um, being in France's head and seeing that decision. When you were watching that, now again, I'm, there's the moment when she sort of sticks her finger. Do you remember when that evolved and did you do a number of takes and did that become the thing that you said, boy, I like that, let's do that? Um, we, it's funny enough, we, uh, Fran was, uh, I, I loved the way that Brando used to scratch and, and, and she loved the little uh, intricacies of John Wayne and that's what she, we, I think we, those are the two things we're kind of, those two opposing forces we were trying to uh, bring into uh, thinking about her character. So in a, in a lot of the, the, the takes and the shots there was even more scratching and a more um, uh, that Brando kind of stuff. And you both have talked about this. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, but a lot of that kind of fell by the wayside in the edit, but little, little remnants and shadows of that are still there, and I think that's, that's one of them. Um, in positioning, again, this is now, the, I'm not sure what was on the page that described her car coming and spotting the billboards and considering what's going on, but positioning the cameras, because there are a, a series of inside the car, outside the car, close to it, where and how did that, was that part of the storyboarding process for you? That was all part of the storyboarding, yeah. Uh, and then getting on set and, and having Ben again come up with a couple more interesting angles. Um, but then it was almost about cutting, you know, as we know, we, there's not a lot, a lot as much time as you, you ever need. So the, the shots atop the boards, looking down and, and, you know, from the nearby cliff didn't really uh, come to fruition. Um, but again, it was almost uh, because we needed to be with Fran, um, I always have problems shooting through windscreens and having you know uh, reflections get in the way. So most of those shots, I think, are in through the side 
or even from the back of the car, just, but just being in with her and, and seeing that um, decision being made. In, on the page, was it a, a couple of paragraphs? Yeah, literally three paragraphs. <laughs> and it was at least a two-day shooting, I suspect. Um, no, it was... I think it wasn't so long. Uh, well, well the, 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 the establishing foggy ones was, was a separate morning. But no, it was probably just, just half a day, I think. Wow, that's amazing. Yeah. Uh, Guillermo, you worked on this since you were six years old, this particular yeah. script. Um, and in terms of the transition of being the writer on this page and then visualizing, for example, even in, I was thinking about the opening and clo closing, if you were looking at both of those, what was on the page and your process of going through making even the decision, I'm going to shoot this not in water. Um, yeah. How did, what, what's that process from writer to director? Well, in my case, it is seamless until the actors come in. Because I think when the actors come in, they co-write. And, and rightfully so. You know, they, the, the, what I try to do is never write anything that cannot be proven by image or sound. Meaning every time you adjectivize on the page, that adjective, you better be able to back it up with uh, light, color, design, sound. Because uh, oftentimes you read screenplays that are written in a literary way and that function on the page, but how do I do this, you know? And, and I, I think uh, that the other thing I do, which is very peculiar, is I break, I break the lines. Uh, if it says, uh, she enters through the door, the room is dark. I can say, she enters, break, through the door, the room is dark. And I'm thinking already, and it's broken, because what I, if, I, if I do one line, it, 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 the, the length of the page to screen is going to be much longer. Like if I write 120 pages, but I write like that, and I know I'm going to go, it ends being two hours and a half. You know, so when I break it down, I know I'm going to do a POV and only I know it, mm -hmm. but it's broken down like that on the page from the beginning and it gets to a certain rhythm. He holds on to the edge of the car. You know, it's 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 it, that breaks it. I try to um, be as specific on the images. Uh, I describe what objects, for example, in the opening, I know I start on a river and I go into a corridor, which is an impossibility, and then I'm gonna go through thematically in the opening of uh, Shape of Water, I wanted all the elements that were gonna be in the entire movie to be in her dream about water. And the movie is about love, water, uh, and time. So I knew I was gonna start in the water and end up in the close-up of the, of the clock. clock. And, and so planning it, it's a $19.3 million movie. I couldn't do tank work. And I remember, um, I used it once on Hellboy. I remembered an old theatrical technique called dry for wet. Right. And I decided that's what I'm going to do. I'm going to puppeteer everything. I'm going to puppeteer every object on the screen. Wires for everything. Wires for everything. Open ceiling on the set. And I'm going to have 10 to 12 puppeteers moving the objects in front of the camera. This included her on the couch. Her, the couch. Uh, we came up with the, the idea of uh, creating a, a fiberglass mold of her sleeping so she could be uh, held by exactly her shape. Uh, you know, all the technical solutions seemed logical because it needed to be very theatrical, and I wanted... I, I believe in symmetry, and most of my movies, all of them, open and close, echoing 
one and the other. And I wanted to open with her dreaming of being in water and closing with her being in water. Uh, the, the, you know, some of the challenges, this is, because I'm fascinated that you're saying, I, I, what I'm writing I know can be done. Were there moments when you're writing and I want this, but I'm not quite sure how this is going to be done? No. No. <laughs> no. That's my one yes and no question, no. and it kind of came out the wrong way. <laughs> no, it is, it is uh, I, when I've written something in the past, very early on, that I didn't understand, I end up not understanding it. Like I, I, I try, or somebody, I, all the solutions technically need to come from me. I need to know drive for weight. I need to know what, what housing for the camera. I need to know. So that's why I like to experiment with little things on each movie to, to get new tools. You know, in this case, I knew that the drive for wet would work. I had done it before, but I, I really wanted it to be very painterly. And, and, and this required the camera. We, we tried different mounts and we ended up with the steady on the dolly, the steady arm on the dolly, which gave me the fluid, the fluidity and the precision when you didn't have the X, Y axis all over the place, but it allowed me to go through doors and correct, not in a nodal way. It, I could float the head around the corner, as opposed to having the nodal tilt and, or in pen. You know, so it, it's, it's finding those tools. Yes, that happens a little later, but I need to know the basic uh, technical things. Thank you. Greta, for you, in terms of transition from the written word, and I know that you wrote hundreds of pages for this before it became the script that it did, yeah. What's that process? Specifically, let's look at the opening because I have no idea what was on the page at the opening versus what we now see, which has, even if, if I remember correctly, there's even a jump cut from the two of them on the bed to them making the bed. So you've got a time transition right off the bat. Did that evolve? Where are you in the process of writer to director? Uh, that was all on the page. I mean, I would say my, my movie is almost entirely on the page, um, even the cuts are on the page. I, I think it's, uh, it's the way my mind works. It's, I mean, it's different than the way you're talking about, but it's, it, it's like I need to know what the rhythm is um, in an editorial sense on the page already. I don't like the feeling, but when I've done other things, like I don't like finding it in the edit in the same way that I think that's, that's a useful tool for someone else. But for me, I like to kind of know how like we're going to cut from this to this and what that rhythmically will do to the words in a way. Because for me, even yes. though cinema is obviously visual language, uh, words matter a great deal to me and the, the way they sound and the way they interact with the editing. So that sort of, the, they're in the bed and then they're making the bed and, and then they're in the car and we go from their backs on the bed to out the window on the car and they're in the same position. Like that was all thought through and it was all... I didn't write it into the script, but it was all in the... I mean, I wrote the cuts into the script, but I didn't write the shots into the script. Uh, but for me, it was... I like... I love symmetry, what you were talking about, and I also love... Um, I love in movies when it feels like the opening of the movie is the entire movie in a scene, and then you basically watch that entire thing play out um, and that dynamic, and even the lines. So the opening lines are... Um, do you think I look like I'm from Sacramento? You are from Sacramento. Are you ready to go home? I'm ready. And 
I wanted the language, both visually and literally the language that they were saying, to be both simple and plain, but also has the ability to be poetic in its own plainness. So with the camera, I had a very clear, I was like, I'm not, I'm not, I'm, I want it to be static as much as possible. I mean, I was influenced by various things. I want it to feel like photographs, like presented, 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 almost like in, um, like, a tri like a triptych or a nativity scene, or like it sort of unfolds in front of you in that way. And yeah, that, that, that opening, I always knew that those were the first lines, and I always knew that them in bed together sleeping was this first moment of them being able to be sweet with each other uh, when they're unconscious. Now, you're hearing this as a writer. You're hearing this in your mind. Yeah. You're visualizing it. You've even written it down in terms of the structure of it. As you now bring in your actors, even in that first scene, for example, the scene in the car, and you do this a lot, the, the, the overlapping dialogue that happens in terms of the way those performances are yeah. there, because it's that familiarity, and that's what we do when we're yeah. there. How does that evolve for you now as a director, having heard this as the writer? Uh, it's, well, um, I, all the overlaps are written in. Uh, I mean, it, I, there's a, I spent a lot of time reading plays, actually, when I was growing up. Um, yours. This is just my, <laughs> I'm, I'm, this is all really crazy for me. But um, uh, there's a playwright I really love, Carol Churchill, who does great overlapping dialogue in the way she indicates overlapping dialogue. With a, There's a slash, and then you're like, this person starts while this person finishes this line. Like that sense of um, creating a cacophony deliberately is something that I've always loved. And I, it, I think it was like, love of theater and, and reading and watching plays that I was interested in trying to make that deliberately. <coughs> and then, but once the actors do it, um, it, it does become something different as it should. There's nothing, it's like I hear it in a rhythm in my head, but it has no personality. It, it only has rhythm. And then it, it, when an actor does it, 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 it transforms and it, it, it's like, um, it's, it's almost as if you recognize it, but you, you've never met it before. And that's when it feels right. Is it, it, it's something familiar, but somehow it's not what you could have imagined. Um, if you wanted to just now, if, if it's Yersha and, and Laurie at that moment doing this, and now you're hearing it in a new way. Yeah. And you want to now make an adjustment with, with either of them. What's happening to you as the once writer is saying, wait, don't touch my writing. I'm thinking of play, playwrights yeah. to some degree. And now this is some, you know, another process, an evolving process. Uh, well, I, I, I didn't adjust the words at all. I actually, I had a very great playwright who's um, in my film and a great writer in general, Tracy Letts. Tracy, yeah. And he said to me, I was doubting something one day, and he said one of the <laughs> best things to me he said, can I give you my two cents? And I said, yeah, <laughs> you're Tracy Letts. Um, and he said, you have to trust the person you were when you wrote it. You're actually not the same person anymore. And it took you a long time. And actually, now you have to direct it. So if the, if, if the words aren't working for you anymore as a director, you, know, you need to take that into account. But like, respect the person who wrote it. Um, 
And that was a very helpful way to think about it. And in terms of adjusting actors, I, I think for me, I never want an actor to feel like they have to hit a target that's in my head. I want them to feel that what we're doing is trying to create as many possibilities as, as, as there, there are. And as, that as many, because as an actor, I know the feeling of when a scene opens up to you, it's like a key fitting in a lock. And you didn't know there was this entire world on the other side. And I can see it happen to actors, and it's the opposite of hitting a target. It's like they're completely empowered to, to make wild swings and choices because everything is right, because it's all coming out of something that makes sense to them. But for me, I feel like when I make adjustments by the time we're on set, because I do, I do a lot of rehearsal, and I like rehearsal, um, and it's not even literally working on the lines. It's like getting them together. It's getting a dynamic going. It's getting them to feel free with each other and with me and to create these connections. Um, but I'll hear it. I'll hear it or I'll see it on their face. I, if, they don't, if there's a lack of specificity, I think that that's the thing that I am most sensitive to because it's what I can actually help them with. It's like, no, no, it's, it's this. It's this is and you give them the most specific thing and then you, all, you watch it click in. And it's not a result, it's um, knowing, what you're, knowing what you're doing, knowing what your goal is, knowing what you're driving at, knowing what that position is. And so I think um, that's what I'm always on the lookout for is, is are they muscling through it with a, something that, because they don't understand it because I haven't done my job. So just getting in there and getting very specific. Got it, well spoken, well spoken, thank you Greta. The opening scene in Jordan in your piece is quite an amazing single shot, if I remember correctly. Um, what was it on paper? Well, the, uh, an, an <coughs> earlier draft of the scene had uh, a lot more going on. Um, there was, you know, uh, originally in, in a draft there was there was a family inside a house who was having a conversation. Um, a, a white family having their dinner and having a you know conversation about Disneyland and and this incident happens outside their house they never realize and I was kind of like you know I was basically trying to do too much I was trying to um, I was trying to start the movie with the, the the protagonist that you expect a horror movie to be started with and sort of fear that and then the 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 guy that's walking down, the black guy that's walking down the street, you know, uh, outside to, you know, hopefully put the audience in a position of fearing him first before we realize that he's our actual protagonist. Um, I, I, I decided to, to strip it way down um, because I, I felt that, you know, the, the first scene in the movie is, is very important and it's very important not to do too much. Uh, what you're trying to get across is a feeling. And in the, the case of a, a thriller, uh, I felt like you're, you're trying to offer the promise uh, to the audience of what is to come. And, and so I wanted to, um, ultimately it became much more important to, uh, for the audience to be immersed in the experience of being a black man walking down the street in a white neighborhood. And I felt that if I could, out of the gate, get everybody on, on that page and feel that feeling and feel that specific fear of, 
of uh, oh, sh this is the we're the wrong person to be in this neighborhood that is, uh, you know, obviously it, through other eyes, um, idyllic and, and, and welcoming. I felt like if we could start there, the audience would uh, receive that promise and from that point forward know that uh, race is the monster that we're fearing. And every other scene after that would be colored with the, the terror, um, which you know, is the most important form of fear, I believe in a horror movie, is, is the, the fear of what's to come. You, know, you can, you can sh show monsters and you can show as much blood as you want, um, but those moments when an audience is imagining what's around the corner, I, I find is, is always way more impactful you know, the, the audience, you're never going to beat the imagination of, of the audience. So your choice now to make this into that particular shot, how did that evolve? Because that's a very directorial choice. Well, it, it, part of it was, you know, recognizing that there's a certain elegance to it. We did it with a steady cam, and, and you know, I, in the beginning, before, in, in the pre-production process, I, I, I made a decision about what each uh, uh, camera technique would be used for. The Steadicam for me was this, uh, is the feeling that, uh, of terror, is the feeling that something's lurking. There's, um, and specifically that, that feeling that the audience and the, prota uh, the protagonist or, or the, the, the character in the scene have that, that, that nagging feeling that they're being watched. Um, or that something's wrong. Um, that, that's, that's what I get from the sort of ethereal motion, um, you know, of course, you know, you know masterfully uh, 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 done by Kubrick in, uh, in The Shining. Shining. Um, but that, that, that feeling of there's another presence and it is a, a kind of an unearthly presence um, following us. In, so staging, in staging that, um, because it's a complex move, because he enters the frame, he, the camera moves around him, if I remember correctly, he changes his direction so the camera does a number of moves. How did that evolve? Uh, you know, we, 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 well, we started doing, practicing it, and uh, you know, yeah, you, you find many details you're not expecting sort of arise. Um, you know, there's moments where you have to be like, okay, you know, uh, it was Lakeith Stanfield, the, you know, the brilliant actor who played Andre in the film. You know, there's moments where you have, the camera's got to go past him and you got to say, okay, Lakeith, you got to pretend like you're walking straight, but you actually have to veer all the way up into the grass and then kind of come back. And there, you know, there's all kinds of illusions and slight, slight of hands that you're, you're, you're doing. Um, and, you know, you do it a couple times and you begin to, re at some point you go, should have shot that. Um, <laughs> it wasn't perfect, but we should have shot it. And then, um, and then you, you start shooting it. So that we ended up doing that that scene probably about 13 times. Wow. Um, and there were several of them. You know, the little variation here and there. Um, there were several of them uh, of of the shots that worked for different reasons. And you know, at, at that point, you know. Uh, 
in the edit, you, of course, you're you're faced with, oh, okay, do I get, do I use the one where this moment worked better, or do I use the one where this moment worked better? And you have to just make this. Um, now you had to, did, you knew you had to own those that space, those those two blocks or three blocks that you're in there, and the and the corner. So that was already in your mind in terms of the corner and turning. Yes. Yeah, yeah. I mean, we uh, we we I, I knew where I was looking. I knew where we were going to look. The uh, the things that uh, sort of surprise you on the day are just a little bit, you know, you, you need the actor to be natural. And to an extent, the, the actor and, and your, um, your Steadicam operator are doing this dance. And, uh, you know, you can't tell an actor at this point, at this word, you have to be here. At this word, you have to be here. Um, that'll, to you know, you have to kind of let the actor lead at a certain point and you know hopefully you have a talented steady camera operator as I did who can make these little adjustments um, so so yeah the 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 I, what what I was surprised by because that was the the first um, uh, we we shot that uh, later in the process we sh we shot that scene and I was I was pretty petrified of the you know the difficult you know, long shot. Um, I found it was um, more fun and, and easier than I thought it was. Because? Because uh, it, it, it became, a it was a, a single project you could focus on for the, the night. Um, it didn't, uh, it, 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 it cut down a certain, you know, you, you you get, you know, you can do work for an hour and realize, well, we just got through six of these, you know. It's, it, it, in this particular case, it was, it, it, it took less time than I believe the original intention of getting coverage here, getting coverage, getting a, this sort of massive uh, amounts, uh, uh, amount of setups and, uh, 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 yeah, and, and it, so it was, it was fun. Great, this value. Thank you. Chris, the opening of the movie uses titles. You make a very specific point of view, which is everything that's dangerous is behind us when it finally starts. Um, how did that evolve from what you had written? Because I know that this screenplay was very short, right? Something 70 pages, if I remember, or something. And, and yeah. here you have incredibly complicated sequences. So what's your process, and even looking at the opening, if you take that as an example? Well, as you say, the script was very stripped down. It was very short, about half the length I usually do. It was 76 pages, and it was mostly stage directions, a very little dialogue. And I'm always looking in the opening of a film to try and have a sense of calm about what the filmmaker is doing, where you create a symbolic representation of what the film's gonna deal with in some way. Um, in the case of Dunkirk, it had to be expositional to a degree, and I wound up using titles, which I hadn't done before, intercutting with it just to give the basic piece of information and then free the imagery up to sort of immediately start telling a more human story. Um, but the idea of having the, I wanted to make it very clear that you were never gonna see the enemy. The enemy's unseen. Um, and so I thought a lot about what it is we're trying to say with the point of view of the film, the human experience. And ultimately the idea was 
the random nature of the violence. And so the idea that we would see a group of soldiers from behind and not see their faces and just see them killed one by one, other than one, who then becomes a protagonist. But the idea behind it is you don't know which one of them it could be, it could be any of them, and it's irrelevant. And then you pick up the guy who happens to, to survive. And so when we came to shoot it, um, we had to shoot it on an electric tracking vehicle with a, uh, a stabilized head sort of chasing the guys. And it was difficult to do it safely because they were having to drop and then they'd be in the path of the vehicle if we weren't careful. So it had to be carefully choreographed, but we wanted it to have a very scrappy and random quality to it. Um, and so the take that's in the film is not the last one we did. It was the one where it was the most uncontrolled. Um, and then we cleaned it up and we did it three or four more times and got it sort of perfect. Um, but I think both Hoyter and myself knew that when we looked at it in dailies, we would choose the one where you can tell that the camera operator doesn't know who's going to get shot first or second, and so you're slightly missing it. And, and sure enough, that was, I mean, we, I don't think we ever even tried the other takes in the, in the cut. And so there's even, I mean, even to the extent that there's a mistake in the shot, you know, there's a, there's a squib that didn't go off or went off, rather, the squib goes off and the guy keeps running and stuff. And we just left it all scrappy in that way because it had energy. And, and ultimately the random quality of it is sort of the point. You want to tell people right at the beginning, this isn't about heroic deeds. It isn't about uh, good people being rewarded and bad people being punished. It's just about the random random in, quality of violence. In, in the script versus that, even that scene, mm. Did you have, had you seen locations already as you were writing, so you kind of knew, yes. mm, I think this, we can use this area, and, or, and, yeah. and once you were in the position of being on that set, what would be the process of even setting up this opening now? Well, it was a very unique situation for me because of dealing with historical truth. And so before I even wrote the script, I went there and I walked the streets and I looked at where things had really happened. Mm -hmm. And I walked out onto the mole, you know, the structure that, that heads out to the sea, and I walked endlessly up and down the beach and saw the vastness of it. Um, and so I had all that in my head from studying the history and then walking it. And then as I wrote the script, I was able to be quite specific. And so then when we went to scout the location, you know, bring my head to the department, and I could show them an exact, say, we're gonna run out of this street. I think I'd actually shot the street that he runs out and sees the beach with a Super 8 camera that I brought with me. And I, you know, I had already kind of, with a friend of mine, just kind of filmed that and sort of seen what that would look like and which bits you'd see. Um, and so we started to put the sequence together that way. And the, the difficulty was explaining to the different department heads, the ADs in particular, that the beach was not a location. It's a whole world. It's, it's basically 14 miles long. You know, we used about seven miles of it. And so you couldn't schedule and walking and moving on sand is very, very difficult, very time consuming. And so you had to schedule it according to very specific areas of where you would be, you know, when you would be up in the town overlooking the beach, when you would be down on the beach right below that, when you'd be over near the base of, of the mole. Um, because just to move from one to the other, to move the whole company would be hours. You know. So in your writing process, it feels like, and this may be true for all of you, but it feels like you're also the director in process writing, meaning that 
You've been to this location. Now I know what this may look like. I'm already seeing a scene that I then am. Yes, I mean, it's, well, it's been interesting listening to everybody talking about that as writer directors. I started working in no budget films. You know, my first film cost $6,000. And so I wrote only what I exactly knew how I could film. I wrote exactly what I had access to. I wrote to this apartment and this restaurant where I knew I could get a couple hours shooting time and everything. Um, and then as the budgets got bigger and as I progressed as a filmmaker to larger things, there became a point where I started to I have to not do that. I have to sit down and I have to write things that I don't know how to do. I have to write things that are going to challenge all my heads of department, challenge me, things that I really don't know. Because the more experience you get, and at this point I've, I've made films up mountains and underwater and in wilderness and in cities, and, you know, and so it becomes harder and harder to sit down as a writer and say, exterior, it's snowing, because you know Oh, for God's sake, you know, all of <laughs> you have this, this wealth of experience that just tells you you shouldn't do it. But <laughs> so you, you sort of, you know, reach a point where you have to say, no, I'm going to write things that I, I literally don't know how to film. I have no idea how to film them. And then we'll figure it out. And the advantage of the large budgets that I've been working with over the years, um, I mean, you never have enough time, you never have enough money. Those things are all the same. But you do get more preparation time. You get more... R&D time, if you like. You get more time to sit with your group of collaborators and throw ideas around about, okay, what possible ways are there to do this? You've got to do that all up front, because once you're shooting, it's the same as on a tiny film. You just don't have enough time, and you, whatever, whatever experiments or decisions you made months ago, you have to stick by them. What were some of the challenges that you recognize, either beforehand or during this pre-production, that I don't know how we're going to do this? Well, I mean, you know, I'd done extensive aerial work before, and I'd done a lot of work with large extras camps before this film. So those were things that, you know, they frighten you a bit, but you know, okay, we'll get through it, there's a way to do it. I know the people who can help me and my AD team can help me put that together and wrangle that. Um, boats I had never done. And, you know, I called Ron Howard, who had just done a film on the water, I'd met at one of these uh, events, actually, and uh, he gave me a lot of very useful information about what to do and what not to do. And, and What were some uh, of the things you learned? Well, some of the things were, were confirming things that I had already slightly supposed, which is, it's, it was basically about the use of tank work versus the open water. Because one of the things I started to notice in films is when you do daytime tank work, the tank doesn't seem to help you in the slightest because you're having to use visual effects to put the horizons in. And the horizon is always exactly where you're looking in the frame, so the whole thing becomes a visual effect. So, it's sort of like, well, why not just shoot in a parking lot? Um, and Ron very much confirmed that. He said where you, you need the tank work is for night work. He said, because going on the open water, there are ways to do it in the day. You could put a good team together. We had a terrific team of people. We were able to shoot the vast majority of the film on the open water. But Ron pointed out, quite rightly, you can't light it out in the open water because when you then light it, it just looks like a tank anyway. Sure. Because you're only, you're, art, you're having to artificially light it um, because you're out in the middle of nowhere. And so that, that was an incredibly useful piece of advice. Um, also the thing that I also heard from Steven Spielberg, who I also called up and, and asked about it, is handheld camera on boats is, is really a fantastic way of getting a lot of footage very quickly. It's the most versatile camera platform that you have. The difficulty we had is we were shooting 65mm, camera. but this very strong Dutch cameraman who was prepared to just 
picked the thing up and uh, I read recently that the Dutch apparently are the tallest people on the face of the earth. <laughs> very big, strong guy, and he did it, just did an incredible job out in the open water. When the tank, you know, there are a number of times uh, where the, the uh, soldiers are caught almost drowning inside these vehicles and these yeah. boats, and there's water in the scene. Yeah. How, I mean, that was new, I suspect, for you. How yeah. were you handling and how did you, what did you learn how to do these? Um, there were a variety of different approaches taken from submerge, you know, having a set that would submerge into a tank or having a set piece that would roll down underwater. Uh, we had various different gimbals and, and gags and, you know, we had a lot of resources making the film, but quite a lot, the budget was quite a lot lower than you would really comfortably want for a film of this scale. And it was really because we had no Americans in the film. So we didn't really feel we'd go to the studio and ask for the full on, you know, tentpole budget. So we did the film for, I mean, about a third of what we, we would usually spend on something of this scale. And what that meant was we had to come up with ways to, you know, simulate, I mean, in the, the scene we showed earlier, you know, there are various angles of a destroyer with guys on it, you know, sinking below the water. And what we wound up doing is designing and building set pieces to do that that were forced perspective. So they only, we had to plan the camera angles exactly, and we literally built the set piece itself specifically for three or four different camera angles where it looks perfect from there, but if you, you pull the camera back from it, it looks small and ridiculous and, and silly. Uh, so it was things like that that we, we wound up developing these kind of in-camera approaches. And the actors, when they're in a position, and I want to talk about casting next for all of us, but when they're in a position of, you know, almost drowning, yeah. what's happening here? What's the safety precautions and what's the... Diet? Well, the, the safety aspect is extremely tricky the, the, because the difficult thing with water is it's very, very deceiving. The, the danger, when you go up in planes, everybody's so aware just on, a, on an instinctive level of the danger. Mm -hmm. With water, everybody will happily swim around and swim around and then you start seeking the set and, and your brain, you'll panic very, very quickly. Um, it's, it's a line you cross, like you're fine, you're fine, you're just having fun and then there's this, this moment of, of sheer panic. And so hmm. we had to plan very carefully how we were gonna put actors and crew members in that, in that position. I say crew members very emphatically because of course, huge amount of attention is paid to the actors and the safety of the actors because they're right there and everyone's looking at them. We had to be thinking about you know, the electrician who's over there wearing a scuba tank who needs to be protected. And things like you have to think about, okay, if you're in t interior on a stage, what happens if the generator goes out and you, you know, you're in the dark? It would be, so you put uh, luminous panels in and things like that. Um, and the thing we wound up coming up with that made me comfortable about filming in that, in that way was that all the ceiling panels, we, we wound up building them on a very lightweight plastic. It was actually something I developed on Inception for where we had to shoot a lot of actors in a van that was underwater. We made these very lightweight plastic panels and they're just attached by Velcro. And so you can be, you know, the water could be right up there and if you have any trouble, you just push it and it's very light. It, it. So there's no barrier there. Right. So it looks substantial, but there's no actual, uh, there's nothing that would actually hold you down and you show people that when they come onto the set, come on. Um, but it, it's, water's, you know, extremely perilous, it has to be done, done very, very carefully. We hope you enjoyed listening to part one of this exclusive discussion. 
You can watch the full video of the Feature Film Symposium on our website and on our YouTube page. Be sure to download next week's episode, where our five Feature Film nominees will cover casting and the rehearsal process. Past episodes of The Director's Cut are available wherever you listen to podcasts. And be sure to click subscribe so you won't miss an episode. If you're enjoying the podcast, please take a moment to rate and review us on iTunes or like us on SoundCloud. It helps other listeners like you find the show. Thanks for listening, and we'll see you next time. This podcast is produced by the Directors Guild of America. Music is by Dan Wally.